Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Let's talk about authority figures for a moment. Authority figures, which I think probably has a negative connotation in our society, which is why I chose that that uh, that phrase. But but what are what are some of the authority figures that we have in our lives in general? Hmm? Police officers, yeah, authority figures. Who else? Parents. Mm-hmm. Me, pastor. Okay. <laughs> I just said negative connotation, and immediately Sue goes, pastor, <laughs> without hesitation. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who else? Teachers. Bosses. Everyone makes breaks eye contact, <laughs> groans, inaudible, but I can hear them throughout the sanctuary. Who else? Anyone else? Government. It's interesting. I'm trying to teach my kids about government and how that works. And they're like, yeah, the government. When I grow up, I want to be the government. And it's like, that not, that's not how, you know, I'm trying to teach them the branches and everything. And they're just like, the man, right? So the man, ooh, that's one. No one gave us. It's everyone's favorite authority figure. The IRS, yes, thank you. <laughs> We'd get there eventually. Everybody loves the IRS. I've known a few people who work for the IRS, and they don't tell me that they work for the IRS until, you know, we have a deep abiding relationship where they're like, look, I got to tell you something. <laughs> I do work in accounting in the IRS. You know, I was like, oh, all right. It's, all right. Uh, here's the bad news. In largely in part, both in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they all tell us essentially the same thing, that in general, we are to submit to the authority figures God puts into our lives. And everyone's like, ah, except, except when those authority figures elevate themselves above God. When those authority figures demand of you or require of you something that only belongs to God, our devotion, our worship, our conscience, the belief between what is right and wrong, if the authority figures are telling you something is wrong that is right or something that is right when it is wrong, those things belong to God. And it is a very incredibly, almost impossible situation when you find yourself with an authority figure that tells you to do something wrong. Whether you're a student and your teacher tells you to write a paper on something you know is not true, but you have to take the, the pro position or the against position, depending on what the moral issue is. If you have a boss who tells you to lie or to to do something morally questionable, sometimes young people, you have a parent. Actually, you know, you you could have a parent as an adult who tells you to do the wrong thing or encourages you to do, do the wrong thing or guilts you into doing the wrong thing. What should we do when authority figures elevate themselves above God? We're going to return to Daniel chapter 3 here in a second, but I'm glad you're all sitting because you're going to hunker down because we're going to do a little bit of reading time this morning. And some of you are all happy and some of you are like, oh, here we are. There's a lot of reading this morning, so get used to it. Uh, This is from the 
Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair, which is my favorite book in the series. It's everyone's least favorite book. It is the best in my humble work, but correct opinion. <laughs> uh, in this book, we see two people from our world, the real world, Eustace and Jill, and they were brought into the, the land of Narnia, which is like a magical land with all sorts of animals and creatures. They're brought in. They meet this marsh wiggle guy, which kind of is like a tall human-looking person with webbed feet who lives in the marsh. Uh, and uh, they were tasked to go and find the rightful king of Narnia who has gone missing. They find the king. He's in Underworld, which is ruled by the Green Queen. They go and they find her. They release the king. And as they release the king, the authority of the Underworld, the Green Queen, she comes into the room and finds them just as they release Prince Rillian. And that's where we pick up the story. Oh, by the way, it's also important to realize something about C.S. Lewis. When you read the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is a giant lion, and he is not merely a metaphor for Jesus. According to C.S. Lewis, he is Jesus. Jesus in this fantasy mythical realm. Uh, so keep in mind, anytime you hear Aslan mentioned the lion, that's Jesus. So the witch finds him. Now the witch said nothing at all, but moved gently across the room. The witch is also the queen always keeping her face and eyes very steadily toward the prince. When she had come to a little ark set in the wall, not far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. This she threw on the fire. It did not blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation which followed, the smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Secondly, she took out a musical instrument rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes. But the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time, and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. Narnia, she said. Narnia, I have often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, ma'am, said Puddleglum. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. <laughs> Indeed, said the witch. Tell me, I pray, where is that country? <clears throat> Up there, said Puddleglum, stoutly, pointing overhead. I, I, I don't know exactly where. <laughs> How, said the queen, with a kind of soft musical laughter. Is there a country up among the stones and the mortar on the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little bit to get his breath. It's in Overworld. And what, or where, pray, is this, how do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and the thrumming. As if you didn't know. It's up above up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. I have no memory of that meeting, but we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream, and unless all dreamed alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, the prince said sternly, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia, and shalt be, dear friend, said the witch in a soothing voice, as if she was humoring a child. Shalt be king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. We've been there too, snapped Jill. She was very angry. 
because she could feel the enchantment getting a hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could still feel it showed that it had not yet fully worked. And thou art queen of Narnia too, I doubt not, pretty one, said the witch in the same coaxing, half-mocking tone. I'm nothing of the sort, said Jill, stamping her foot. We come from another world. Why, this is a prettier game than the other, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Of course, a lot of things darted into Jill's head at once. Experiment house, Adela Penny, father, her own home, radio sets, cinemas, cars, airplanes, ration books, cues. But then they seemed to dim and far away. Thrum, 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 went the strings of the witch's instrument. Jill couldn't remember the names of the things in our world, and this time it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted, for now the magic was in its full strength, and of course, the more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all. She found herself saying, and at the moment, it was a relief to say, no, I suppose that other world must all be a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub. Never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours, said they. Puddleglum was still fighting hard. I don't know rightly what you all mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hadn't enough air. But you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, and you still won't make me forget Narnia, and the whole overworld, too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like all this, for all I know. Nothing more likely. But I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for the brightness. Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awakened. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, the blessing of Aslan upon this honest marsh wiggle. We've all been dreaming these last few minutes. How could we have forgotten it? Of course, we've all seen the sun. By Jove, so have we, said Scrub. Good for you, Puddleglum. You're the only one of us with any sense, I do believe. Then came the witch's voice cooing softly like the voice of a wood pigeon from the high elms in an old garden at three o'clock in the middle of a sleepy summer afternoon. And it said, What is this sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we jolly well do, said Scrub. Can you tell me what it's like? Asked the witch. Thrum, thrum, thrum went the strings. <sighs> Please, your grace, said the prince very coldly and politely. You see that lamp? It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangeth moreover from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky. Hangeth from what, my lord? asked the witch. And then while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added with another of her soft silver laughs. You see, when you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your son is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The son is but a tale, a children's story. 
Yes, I see it now, said Jill with a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, There is no sun. And they all said nothing. She repeated in a softer and deeper voice, There is no sun. After a pause, and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, You are right. There is no sun. It was such a relief to say it and to give in. There was no sun. There never was a sun, said the witch. No, there never was a sun, said the prince and the marsh wiggle and the children. What should we do when authority figures try to turn us against God? When they elevate themselves above, above who God is and try to get us to believe things that are not true or to confess things that are untrue to say what is bad is evil and what is, e- what is bad is good and what is good is evil. What do we do? We return to Daniel, similar to the green witch, an authority figure in her world. We come to a real-life authority figure, King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember last week, Daniel is actually not in this story. Daniel, last week, it was told that he stayed in the king's palace. Daniel appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of the other Jewish youth, to oversee the province of Babylon. And so they are there in this story while Daniel presumably is still in the king's court attending to the king's affairs. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they herald, and a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it's interesting. You remember last week, Daniel had this dream, or Daniel interpreted the king's dream. The king had a dream. No one could tell him the dream or the interpretation. God gave Daniel the dream and its interpretation. In that dream, if you recall, uh, was this one here, this dream, where he had this uh, dream of, of a multiple composite colossus, uh, an idol, a statue. And the head was made of gold, and Daniel told him, the head represents you and the kingdom of Babylon. But then every other material and mineral was a different nation, subsequent nations, until the kingdom of God eventually comes and obliterates all of them, takes them all out. So that's what Daniel told him. 
the king shockingly elevated Daniel to, to be the, uh, the prefect of the province of Babylon. So now we don't know exactly what this idol looked like or what this colossal statue looked like, but Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he makes, and I can't think, but it looks exactly the same except for he makes it all in gold. What do you think he's trying to tell God? My kingdom will never end. And then he calls in all of the people in power, all the, the financiers, the magistrates. He calls them all to the province. He says, I have set this up. We don't know what it looks like. Maybe it looked like Marduk. Maybe it looked like uh, Baal. Maybe it looked a little like King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know. <laughs> but he sets this thing up and he says, everyone is going to bow down and worship this together. I mean, that's a good idea, right? Like unified, right? You want unified people. We all have a corporate worship service together. If everyone's bowing down to the same thing at the same time, we're all unified, and we're all bowing down to the might of Babylon, maybe King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so they do. And so they do. It's called idolatry, of course. But what do we do when authority sets themselves above God, elevates themselves above God? Worship me, the authority says, or worship my idol. Worship my image. Worship this thing that is something that no one should ever worship. What do we do? We, in America anyways, we don't have that problem. You know, we don't have uh, politicians setting up. That's something none of you said. Politicians, those are also our uh, uh, authority figures in our lives. Um, we, um, we don't have idols that, that politicians say, hey, bow down to this. But we do have idols. In fact, John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idol makers. We turn everything and anything into an idol, don't we? It could be damaging things. We turn drugs and alcohol into idols all the time. Um, you know, illicit extramarital sex, that can become an idol. Pornography, that can become an idol. But we turn good things into idols too, don't we? You can turn a relationship into an idol. This is my all in all. Everything in this relationship is the most important thing. You can turn your spouse into an idol. You can turn your boyfriend and girlfriend into an idol. You can turn your children into an idol. My children are more important than God. We can turn anything into an idol, can't we? Um, we can. The favorite thing that we love to do right now, and this is where I'm going to, you know, poke a little bit. We like to turn our politicians into idols. If we vote for this person, everything will be better. And if we vote for this person, we're all going to hell, right? Neither of those statements are true, right? We've never voted anyone to the office that has ushered in a paradise and has fully realized all of our hopes, dreams, and desires, and it will never happen. That's idolatry. When we get into our minds, all of my hopes, plans, dreams, and desires rest in this one person, and all of my fears and all my darkest, my darkest worries are realized in the, the opposite person, right? That, that's idolatry. They can't save you. Their kingdom is not eternal. And yet we do. We, we tend to set up those idols. If you get the right person, ah, everything's going to be fine. If you get the wrong person, ah, we're all damned to hell. But you know, there's another idol in America that we, I think, worship even more than the idol of politics. It's the idol of self. We make a self-idol. We define ourselves now by your desires. Hey, whatever you desire, that is what makes you you. No, we're, we're not. Whether those are good desires, destructive desires, or whatever. No, but we make it our own. Nobody in America comes out and says, okay, idol of self, right? Guys, worship yourself. No one says that, but we use slogans to talk about that. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. 
follow your heart. Every children's movie ever, follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, Zion says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it, right? And look, there is some truth to that, right? You have dreams, desires, skills, and abilities. Go follow them, but they don't elevate above God. Nike, just do it, right? Like, no, the idol of self. And, and in America, it's not just enough to say, hey, I'm my own God, and, and I can choose to do whatever I want, and you can't tell me what to do. It's not enough to do that. We have to enforce other people's idols too, right? If they, if they say that they, okay, we'll, we'll choose a goofy one. If, if high schoolers say that they're a furry animal, we have to say you are a furry animal, right? No, <laughs> it's reality. We, we, we can't, but, but no, that's, that's the idol of self. And, and we have changed the words love and hate to mean something that they don't mean. Love means putting aside your wants, needs, and desires with great affection for the good of another individual. Hate means that you want to see somebody absolutely destroyed and you despise them and want their life ruined. Now, because of the idol of self, we have to say love means total agreement and acceptance with everything that I do. And hate means any kind of disagreement. Whew, that is so damaging, right? Because obviously I hate my kids every day then. Because I'm, I'm a good parent. I hate them, I guess, because I correct them, right? And I'm like, no, you can't do that. That's destructive, right? I hate my wife every day. Um, on that definition, I do. Because right? <laughs> we disagree all the time. If you guys hear us and if you're in the parsonage of during after hours, you'll hear that we disagree. No. Let's have a deeper definition of those things. Love is put aside your wants, needs, and desires. And disagreement isn't hate. Disagreement is... We have a disagreement. We're going to have disagreements in this church. You guys probably already disagree with me now in this sermon. That's fine. It's not hate. The idol of self is what we all prop up. What should we do when authority figures set themselves above God? Verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship this golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man, you can even sense the ethnic hatred here, can't you? And you know, they have to come here, and it's amazing. You'll see the, the instruments are mentioned again. Why does, why does Daniel keep writing down all the instruments? I think it's because just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, thrum, thrum, thrum. The society says the lie over and over and over again, and you just want to bow down. You just want to give in. You don't want to fight. It's so hard to stand when everyone else bows down. Thrum, thrum, thrum. The music goes. And of course, these Chaldeans, they have to come and they have to accuse the Jewish youth, the people of God, because in our, because otherwise the whole thing falls apart, and I think that they want their power. But, but you know, that happens today in society. You don't have to go out and start a crusade. And by the way, when people do this, especially on Facebook and everything, <laughs> right? You, we all have that uncle, 
who makes everything hyper-political on Facebook, right? We all have that uncle, aunt, sister, brother, whatever. <laughs> and you're like, man, that's, I want to engage this, but wisdom tells me don't, don't. Ah, but I want to, but I don't, right? The reality, though, is this, um, you don't have to go out on a crusade. You don't have to go out on a crusade and say, everything with this society is wrong. You don't have to do that. All you have to do in this society and every society is to live your life faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I'm not going to bow down to this sin. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to live in faith. I'm going to follow after Jesus. You don't have to do anything other than follow Jesus faithfully and people will see you stand out of the crowd and they will hate you for it. You don't have to go out and curse the dark. You just have to live the light, and all of a sudden, everyone realizes something's different. What's going on? And there will be people, not everyone, but there will be people just like here who hate and want to destroy. And in our life, we realize the idol of self is a very fragile God. Because frankly, right, couples tend to do this, especially married couples. They tend to expect the other person in the marriage to be God for them, to fulfill all their wants, needs, and desires, right? Don't look at your spouse or look around or, you know, raise your hand. But this does happen where it's like, man, I'm miserable. It's all my wife's fault. Ah, you know, things aren't going the way I want to. It's all my husband's fault. I've heard, you know, we, we expect our spouse to be God for us and to fulfill, or, you know, if you're dating, right? Like, it's like, I got to find the right person, the right one, the only one, right? And they're going to fulfill all my wants, needs, and desires. All my dreams, it's not true. We're all flawed individuals trying to get through this together. We are. And yet you get into that marriage and you realize, oh, okay, this is a flawed individual. And sometimes people break up, sometimes people get divorced over it. The God of self is a fragile God. You don't have to go on a crusade against the fragile gods of this world. All you have to do is follow Jesus faithfully, and someone is eventually going to go, wow, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't believe that. How dare you, you bigot, fascist, hate monger, right? Go through all the, the insults. I'm just trying to live faithfully for Christ. You're a bigot. I, I'm just trying to follow him faithfully. No, you're a hateful person. I'm disagreeing with you. I get that. I'm not hating you. I want what's good for you. No, no, you're, you're a hate monger. The God of self is a very fragile God, and it takes the whole society to prop it up. It takes everyone in the plain of Dura to prop up this God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up there. They might even be like, we don't even know who, th- that's not Marduk. Kind of looks like him. Is he a God now? We're Babylonians. We don't believe in, you know, we believe you're close to God. We don't believe that you've ascended to Godhood, right? And no, it takes everyone. Everyone's got to do it. And there's three Jewish youth that refuse to bow down because they're being faithful to God. What should we do when authority figures set themselves above God? Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship to the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
So you can see the image. He's got this, it's like a milk jug uh, shaped furnace. And they're starting to stoke it. It's, it's large on the bottom. It comes up to the top where the fire comes out of. There's a platform up there to be able to maintain things. And in the bottom is usually where you, you shovel through all the fuel. They're stoking the fires. He mentions the music again, the thrum, thrum, thrum. Just give in. It'd be the easiest thing to do. Just be, just bow down. It doesn't mean anything, right? So many of us, I think, if we were brought to that situation, they're stoking the fires, we were going to throw you in if you just bow down. We'd be like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, oh, you, you, you said the trigon. See, you said, you said the lyre and the zither and the trigon, and I didn't hear the trigon. I don't even know what a trigon sounds like. Hey, trigon over there, can you guys be louder? We didn't know. I'm sorry, we're going down now, right? That's what so many of us would be like because it, it's, the cost is so high. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's just a formality. I can't say that this is necessarily a recommendation for a read or for a movie, but uh, a number of years ago, Endo wrote the book Silence. Martin Scorsese, a few years ago, uh, made a movie. Phenomenal book, phenomenal movie. Uh, very hard, very difficult. You're not going to go away feeling good from it. A lot of hard questions, so not a recommendation. The book and the movie, they are about uh, Portuguese missionaries, uh, Jesuit miss missionaries that are trying to bring the gospel to Japan. And as they're going to Japan, they, their, uh, their mentor had gone and he disappeared. And there was rumors that he apostatized, that he walked away from Jesus. And so they are, uh, they're, they're two of his pupils, they said, he would never do that. Let's, let's go over and find out. And they go over and, uh, and they meet incredible persecution. And at one point towards the end of the movie, Father Rodriguez, he is uh, in a cell and they begin torturing Christians um, outside in the courtyard. And his former mentor and the officials, they bring him out. And as they're dangling, being tortured, crying out, screaming, they said, you are the only one that can save them. All you have to do is apostatize. Turn against Christ. All you have to do is apostatize. And they bring out this, this icon of Jesus and they lay it on the muddy ground. All you have to do is apostatize. Step on Jesus. All you have to do. Christians are screaming, it's you. You can save them. You're doing this to them. And as they're, they're crying out, he's filled with angst. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't, I, can't, I can't possibly do this. And at the pivotal moment, one of the officials, one of the Japanese officials comes up to him, puts a hand lovingly on his shoulder and says, it's okay. It's only a formality. It doesn't mean anything. We face that in this world. Thrum, thrum, thrum. It's just a formality. It doesn't mean anything. Go along with the crowd. Hold Christ in your heart. But do what everyone else is doing on the outside. It's fine. Thrum, thrum, thrum. The pressure is hard. What should we do when authorities set themselves above God? Just go along. It's so much easier. It's such a relief to just give in and end the fight and to not be faithful to Jesus. He'll forgive you. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they say, look, we don't have to give you an answer here. We are living faithfully to our God, Yahweh, the one true God, the God who causes things to be the way they are. He is the God. We are going to serve him. We don't even have to give you an answer. We will not worship these gods. Our God is fully capable. He created the heavens and the earth and all that you see. He's capable of delivering us. And they say these amazing three words. Remember them. Remember them always. But if not. They realize God can save us. He can deliver us. He can get us out of this situation. He is not obligated to do so. Even if God chooses not to rescue us, even if we die in that fiery furnace, we will not bow down to your false gods. We won't. In 1940, the Allied forces fighting against uh, the Nazi regime were in Dunkirk, France. About 350,000 Allied troops. They were stuck in Dunkirk on the retreat coming up against the English Channel. The Nazi forces were bearing down on them and about to overwhelm them. The Nazis began dropping leaflets and propaganda. Just give up. Just surrender. You can't win. If you don't surrender, we will obliterate you all. And they would have and they were about to. The Allied forces were talking back to forces in Great Britain. They did not have a good escape plan, uh, and, and Britain, Great Britain is sending back notes and everything to them over telegraph saying, we are going to try. We're trying to put together a rescue team. We're trying to, to, to put together a re- somehow to get you off and to get you back here to our territory. And as all this conversation is going on, finally the Allied forces stuck in Dunkirk, France, sent back three words to the Allied forces. But if not, no explanation. Everybody knew what it was. It went right back to this story. Thank you for trying to save us, and we are hoping that you will save us, but if you don't, we will not give in to this evil. We will not stop these forces. We will do our job even if it costs us our life. But if not, verse 18, remember it. But if not, would you be faithful to Christ even if it cost you your life? Would you be faithful to Christ if it cost you everything in this life. What should we do when authority figures elevate themselves above God? Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. Why does it mention that? Because clothes are very flammable. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. 
So it was so incredible. They didn't feed him through the bottom as you would expect. He threw them, they threw them in over the top. The guards who threw them in, they perished in the fire. Would you be faithful to Jesus if it cost you your job? I mean, think about that. Think about that real hard. Ask God the Holy Spirit to, to search your heart and mind. Do you know what happens if you lose your job? Most of us are not financially secure enough to go without, without, without a job for any amount of time. Would you be faithful to Jesus if you lost your job? Would you be faithful to Jesus if it meant you lost your marriage or you lost your boyfriend or girlfriend? Would you be faithful to Jesus if it estranged you from your relationship with your son or daughter? Would you be faithful to Jesus if it cost you your health? Or your life? Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered them, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed and their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them, which is crazy because if I light a candle, I smell like a campfire for the next three days. This was a miracle. God was not obliged to do this. He was not obligated to rescue them. But he did. He chose to do it out of his faith. We don't know who this fourth figure was in the fire. Uh, some say maybe it was an angel. Uh, some may say that this is the son of God that we see in the Old Testament, a, a pre-incarnate Jesus appearing next to them. I tend to think that it was. Rescuing them, saving them, preserving them from the fire. Not even a hair was singed. Wow. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered the servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. <clears throat> they did not ask for that, by the way. This is, this is him. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What? happens when authority figures what should we do when authority figures elevate themselves above god we should be faithful to god trusting that he will deal with the outcome we stand up when everyone else bows down it is hard in this culture with the thrum thrum thrumming of the same beat you are your own 
God, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. When the Bible says, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him, put on his righteousness. He died for you. He rose again. He's coming again. His kingdom is here. It is already not yet. Follow Jesus. Pursue him and his righteousness. Pursue the kingdom of God. No, our culture says, follow your own God. And as soon as we say no, we've toppled over that frail God of self. It's so hard. I think in this story, God was showing King Nebuchadnezzar who God was and who Nebuchadnezzar was not. He said, then what God can you deliver you from my hand? Yeah, no God can, except for the one true God, except for Yahweh, the one who created all things. Yahweh, the one who causes things to be the way they are. When those authority figures elevate themselves above God and demand you worship and demand you say what is evil is good and what is good is evil, you choose to be faithful to God, trusting that he will deal with the outcomes. Back in 1940 in Dunkirk, they sent that, that telegram, but if not, their resolve so inspired the British people they mobilized merchant marine ships, Olympic sailing vessels, uh, fishing trowels, mostly non-military, mo- non uh, personal or commercial boats. And they went across the English Channel and saved almost all of the 350,000 Allied soldiers. It's called the miracle of Dunkirk to this day. God is not obligated to save us, but he often delights to do so. He can save us. To conclude the uh, story from the Chronicles of Narnia here, as the children, as the prince, as Puddleglum the Marsh Wiggle, are deep into the witch's spell. It says, for the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs, and now she did. But it was dreadfully hard to say. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips. At last, with an effort that seemed to take all the good out of her, she said, there's Aslan. There's Aslan. Who's Jesus? Aslan, the witch said, quickening ever so slightly the pace of her thrumming. What a pretty name. What does it mean? He's the great lion who called us out of our own world, said Scrub, and sent us into this one to find Prince Rillian. What is a lion? asked the witch. Oh, hang it all, said Scrub. Don't you know? How can we describe it to her? Have you ever seen a cat? Surely, said the queen. I love cats. Well, a lion is a little bit, only a little bit, mind you, like a huge cat with a mane. At least it's not like a horse's mane, you know? It's more like a judge's wig, and, and it's yellow and terrifically strong. And the witch shook her head. I see, she said, that we should do no better with your lion, as you call it, than we did with your son. You have seen lamps, and you imagine a bigger and better lamp, and called it the sun. You see cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat, and it's to be called a lion. Well, tis a pretty make-believe, though. To say truth, it would suit you all better if you were younger. And look at how you can put nothing into your make-believe world without copying it from the real world. This world of mine, 
which is the only world. But even you children are too old for such play. As for you, my lord prince, thou art a man full grown. Fie upon you! Are you not ashamed of such toys? Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have work for all of you in the real world. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now to bed, to bed all, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed. The strength all gone from them, the enchantment almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would have hurt a human, for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. And three things all happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less, for though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different from the sweet tones she had been using up until now, called out, What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. Thirdly, the pain made itself, the pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire. Limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always likes to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all of those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have, then all I can say is that in that case, the things that are made up seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of the kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that a funny thing, when you come to think of it, because we're just babies making up a game if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side. Even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it, I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't a Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we are leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. Oh, hurrah, good old puddle glum, cried Scrub and Jill. But the prince shouted suddenly, where? Look to the witch. And she reveals her true form as a dragon. The team comes together and slay the dragon. As they stood for truth, instead of falling under her spell. 
when authority figures set themselves up above God. Choose to be faithful to Christ. You must stand instead of bow down. Choose to be faithful to Christ. Yes, Jesus can heal your marriage. Yes, he can renew your relationship with your children or restore your lost relationship with your parent. Yes, he can restore your finances. Yes, he can preserve you, your job. He can give you a raise in your job. Yes, he can heal you, heal your cancer, heal your loved one. If not, let's pray. Father, we come to you as weak vessels, as weak men and women. We want to be faithful, but it is so hard. The thrum, thrum, thrumming of this culture is constant. It's so easy to bow down, to just give in, to give to the idol of self or any number of idols that we've made in our lives. Holy Spirit, will you come and strengthen us? Help us to be faithful to Jesus Christ, who was, who is, who will come again. Help us to be faithful to the one who laid his life down for us. Help us to be faithful to the one who shed his blood for us so that whoever believes can have eternal life. Help us to be faithful to the one who is resurrected from the dead. He reigns and lives forevermore and will one day come to renew and restore all things. And when he returns, may we be found faithful to him. Father, there are so many authority figures in our life. Help us to be gracious Christians like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, believers of you, O God, who said, we don't have to give an answer. We're just going to serve our Lord. He's capable of delivering us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to be faithful to him. And Father, help us to realize that even if the worst things happen, on the other side of this life lies eternity the new heaven and the new earth, joy unspeakable, and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Help me, help us to be faithful to you in these difficult times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.